This is The Water Cooler. I'm your host, Joseph Harper. Each month, we bring you real and imagined tales told by people from all walks of life. Our theme this episode is I'm With The Band in celebration of New Zealand Music Month. We've got four stories for you today about taxidermy ferrets, intimate musical notes, singing over the phone, and how to befriend musicians you've never met. A quick warning before we start, these stories were told live and language and themes may not be for everyone. Our speaker, Andrew Tidball, is the man behind New Zealand music news and information site Cheese on Toast. Andrew launched the site nearly 12 years ago as a hobby, and it's now his full-time job and he's become a well-regarded voice and critic in the local music community. His story today is about his experiences starting the site and an unlikely connection he made. Mr Andrew Tidball. So um, the Facebook event for tonight says, um, what's it like to be a real, what's it like being a real rock star? And I've got to say I feel pretty underqualified um, <laughs> to tell you what it's like to be a rock star, um, given that when I was uh, about 11 years old, I was kicked out of the school choir for being out of tune. I have <laughs> no musical talent whatsoever myself. Um, and, uh, but early on in my teens, I, I, I found that I really liked music though. And um, I found myself, uh, I'm English, we moved back to New Zealand, um, and I was living in Papatoitoi, um, watching radio pictures, buying enemy magazines three months later from the UK, and forming a record collection based on these sort of things. And, and I didn't really know many people because we sort of just moved here. So I had no friends telling me what to like. Um, so I, I kind of liked things that, like um, Look, Blue, Look Blue, Go Purple, The Pogues, Madonna. You know, and it's sort of like this weird sort of no rules, you know, like a, um, my haircut was something between Nick Rhodes from Duran Duran, a guy from Jesus and Mary Chain. <laughs> and my first gig that I ever went to was Run DMC. Um, so I just didn't fit in and I liked not fitting in I guess I kind of liked having this disparate taste in music and being quite broad in what I liked Um, a trip to Sydney to see my brother and sister um, inspired me to become a DJ Um, my first clubbing experience um, in Sydney and I sort of thought yeah I'm going to be a DJ so I sort of saved up and bought t- turntables. And um, I did a bit of that in, in, in my early 20s. Um, but firstly, I was never very good at beat matching, even though I kind of tried. Um, and secondly, I just kind of had this sort of weird, um, like I kind of thought that people should like want to dance to the residents. You know, why wouldn't you, you know? But they didn't. And so I kind of um, didn't do very well. Um, and I had a proper job. I worked for the tax department, um, which is probably the furthest away from being a rock star that one could get. Um, and I had a really good career with them. I was there for 18 years. Um, so that's a long time. Not the same job. I did different jobs there, but you know. Um, but the internet invent- was invented. Now, for a lot of people, that's probably like, what do you mean the internet was invented? But it was a new thing. Um, and I was an early adopter, um, you know, the, the, the squeal of a modem uh, in, the, in the evening was the way that my, my evening 
stuff. And, you know, a lot of, yeah, my flatmates could never use the phone. <laughs> Much to their chagrin. Um, and my, my internet provider um, said, you could have a homepage with a whole mech. What can I do with that? So I taught myself HTML um, and started write, writing pointless lists of music I liked. Just putting them online. Right. I'll update that. And uh, it, it's pointless. <laughs> nobody, nobody read it. Um, why would you? <laughs> um, and then I was going to go into a few gigs and I kind of thought, ah, oh, I know what I could do. Because that's a bit boring. I could like write each week. I could update it with like the gigs that I went to and just write these reviews about them. And um, so I started doing that, and I called myself Geek Boy because um, I kind of thought that was both self-deprecating because geek wasn't cool yet, <laughs> and boy was edifying because really I was actually in my thirties. So <laughs> <laughs> Um, but it was around that time that these two shows in particular really stood out for me. And that's the kind of the point of the story. It's a long way getting there. Um, the first show, I remember going to see uh, a band called The Rock and Roll Machine. Does anyone really remember them? Yep. Oh, good. <laughs> good. Um, rock and Roll Machine, and they were playing at the Masonic in Devonport. And. Um, I was a massive fan of Rock and Roll Machine. They, they played quite a lot, and I always go to their shows. I go to the shows quite a lot. They played them on BFM quite a bit. I was a fan. And there was a, a support act from a young band of teenagers from Crime from Cambridge. And I thought, no, probably about be very good. Probably be a bit shit. <laughs> but you know, I was uh, I was obsessed with like getting keeping my web, web my web page up to date, so I'd see the see the support bands. So I could write mean things about them. And um, I tell you what, though, from the get-go, as soon as they hit the stage on that first note, if anybody should be stood here telling you what it's like to be a rock star, it should be Dolph from the Datsuns. Um, and that was the first time I saw the Datsuns, and I couldn't wait to get home and write about how amazing the Datsuns were. And um, they really sort of like, it was just, and, and, and I guess like what was really exciting then was within... <coughs> Like it seemed like just months, or sorry, only a couple of years. Um, they were on the front cover of Enemy, you know, and I was like, and I kind of felt proud that I saw them at this early stage, you know, and then they were on this thing. And it kind of made me feel so, my small way of writing about them, I felt that I was partly responsible for their <laughs> success. Clearly, I wasn't. But, um, but writing these things, you know, and, and of course, nobody, I thought nobody was reading it. You know, so I'd write these things every Sunday, just typing it away, and mm, didn't have a web counter. I didn't know if people were reading it or not. Um, and then one day I was at the Ambassador. Do you remember the Ambassador in Pointchet? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, and only one toilet. So I was in the queue for the one toilet. And um, a few weeks before that, sorry, I sort of forgot. A few weeks before that, I'd, I'd written about a band called the Demi Whores. You heard of them? And I said, uh, I kind of, because I thought nobody was reading it, I thought I could get away with things. And <laughs> I once said about the Demi Whores that um, if you had the opportunity to see them, that perhaps 
if you put matchsticks under your toenails and set fire to them, you'd have a much more enjoyable experience. <laughs> and um, so there I was in the queue to go to toilets, and um, Ed Gaines from the Demi Horse. <laughs> now, if you know Ed Gaines, he is a giant of a man, like really big. And he looked around and he goes, Are you geek boy? <laughs> and honestly, I just shrunk and I was like, and um, he was like, you don't like my band. And like, I really, he grew. I shrunk. And I was like, oh. And he, goes, and he just like saw me struggling and just put his hand on and goes, good on you, mate. I like your webpage. And I was like, oh, people, people do read it. And I should be more careful about what I say. <laughs> so another time at the Ambassador, I was going to see a band called Two Lane Blacktop um, from Wellington, who, don't know if anybody's heard of them. Um, the basis from Two Lane Blacktop is Lady Hawk. Nah. Um, anyway, they were kind of a garage rock and roll band. Lots of good things being said about them. First time in Auckland, very keen to see them. And there was a band from Ori was supporting them, who um, I dragged my mate Steve along. And we kind of thought they had a funny name, they're probably a bit of a novelty band. Um, that was another time where the support act took the stage, or in the ambassador's case, the floor, and um, my jaw dropped. It was the Minchaks, and they were truly the most exciting, most visceral thing I'd ever seen that close up. And again, I just couldn't wait to get home and write about them. And I'd go to every single Minchak show, and I'd write about them every time. And it was full of hyperbole, it was ridiculous. Um, <laughs> And then, in 2003, they released their debut EP, Otkin, Otkin, Otkin. And I was really excited because there's this band that I'd been sort of going to see, and they had a release and I wanted to get it, you know, so I rushed down to Real Groovy to buy it. And years of record and CD collecting would mean that I would open the cover and look through the artwork, and Ruben's artwork in that EP is amazing, it still is. Stop being amazing, but it's amazing. <laughs> Go and look at it. Um, and I got to the back page, and I'd always read like, the credits of, of albums. Do you, do, do you guys do that? I always like finding the connections and stuff. And um, so I was reading through it, and um, just after the words, the thanks to Blink and Duncan Grieve, and then before Chris Hockard and some PFM DJs, there was Geek Boy. And I'd never met these guys, never spoken to them in my life. But my heart skipped a beat because it was kind of like, wow, I don't care who reads my shit. <laughs> the Minchik's read it. Wow, you know. And then, so I think that was probably the closest I've ever felt to being a rock star was that moment. Um, so that was it. And um, my mate Steve, who came to me to that show that first time, he was like, you should do something with your website, man. Like, do something, you know, give it a name, get a domain. So it was a couple of months later, on the 5th of December that year, that um, I launched Choose Some Post, and that's how it started. Thanks for the
Our speaker, Milana Radojic, is an Auckland photographer who has shot for bands such as the Mint Shacks, Shapeshifter, Cora, At Peace, Die 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 and Coco Solid, to name just a few. Her images have featured on numerous magazine covers such as Real Groove, Volume, The Brag and Beat magazines. Her story today is about an interesting band photo shoot involving a dead ferret, some vegetarians and a whole lot of deer. Milana Radojic. about today is um, about the first band portrait shoot that I did um, which was with Die 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 and this is probably about 10 years ago now. I was still at uni and the year before I've been all throughout I've been shooting live bands and incorporating that into my studies and I thought okay for my last year I really need to kind of push the envelope a little bit and also there was another guy who all of a sudden started taking photos of bands, metal bands and I was like well fuck okay fine copy me I'll get on with something else and then I thought, okay, I'm going to start taking photos of bands, kind of more portrait style, but a little bit out there and whatnot. And by this stage, they would have kind of known who I am, seen me around at their shows and whatnot. And um, so I approached a few people, and Die 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 was one of them. And this was back in the day when Henry Oliver was in the band, and it was Mikey, and it was Andrew Wilson. And I had this idea to approach a taxidermy studio and get some kind of lots of taxidermy animals and throw die 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 in there and get a little bit crazy. I told Andrew Wilson my idea. Um, He's like, yeah, cool, that sounds good. Sure, why not? Um, and then I found a taxidermist out in Pepitoritoi somewhere like about an hour's drive away from Auckland. And this is where Andrew came in. He was uh, kindly giving us a ride that day because I didn't have a license. <laughs> <laughs> and also at the time he did, um, Andrew here had a stuffed ferret which we decided to take along with us to the shoot to kind of include it with all these <laughs> animals, because why not? And because the drive was quite a bit of a way away, I decided to buy some muffins and drinks and snacks and whatnot. Um, and we went and picked up the band. Henry was absolutely sick as a dog. He had a flu. He, could, he was nearly passing out. I thought, okay, do we want to cancel this, reschedule? And they were like, no, no, that's fine. So we were driving out to this taxidermist place um, and I told them, hey guys, if you want any snacks or anything, I have them in the boot. You can kind of reach it from the back seat. And the ferret was there. <laughs> now, halfway on the way there, Mikey goes in to get something. And he's like, why do you guys have a dead animal in the car? And I thought, why is that a problem considering we're going to a taxidermist <laughs> studio? And then Henry from the front, like doubling over, kind of, again, sick as a dog, he's like, I wasn't Pepitoto anyway. I thought, oh, fuck, okay. Um, the taxidermy guy? <laughs> and then Andrew Wilson, who knew about the shoot, little shit, cracks up laughing, goes, oh, yeah, that's so funny, considering we're all vegetarians. just <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, my God, you have got to be kidding me. I don't know these guys. They're probably hating me right now. <laughs> And I thought, okay, I'm going to try to make the best out of this situation. We get to the taxidermy place. Um, it was this kind of garage shed that he had all his pieces in. And not all of them were freestanding. Some were kind of like, I wanted the guys to be holding it. What not? And they were like, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's great. I was setting up my backdrop um, as well. 
trying to do it as quickly as possible to get the hell out of there because this was just not working out for me. And also the guy, um, the taxi driver, his name I can't remember, but I'm going to call him Bo. Why not? Um, but he also had live deer on the property with this massive farm, with live deer running around. And while I was setting up, Mikey and Andrew Wilson, not the boss, started rocking up this deer as well and started like running up and down and up and down trying to chase them and get them really, really excited. And then Bill, the taxidermy guy, comes out and goes, Oi, fucking stop that. Otherwise, they're going to get so excited. Pour all the, um, the gate down and then you'll be in trouble. And I'm thinking, oh, fuck, yeah, this can make everybody worse. <laughs> so somehow I was like, yes, 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 we're ready to go and shoot. I quickly shot off a few things. Henry, the poor, the poor guy, he wasn't even standing. He was crashing on the ground because he couldn't stand up straight. He was really about to pass out. I'm mortified, absolutely mortified with this whole situation. Snapped a roll film. Again, this is about 10 years ago, I was shooting film. Um, and hope for the best. I can't remember the shoot at all. I can't remember the car ride back. I was just like going, oh my God, what? Uh, I'm never gonna make it as a photographer. This is ridiculous. <laughs> um, and then in the end, the photos ended up uh, <laughs> being quite interesting because I had to comp a few things. I was like, God, that looks bad. He looks great there, but he doesn't look good there. Oh, far up. So yeah, it's just, it was a lot of Photoshop work to kind of um, get the image. And in the end, I actually really liked it because they did look a little bit uncomfortable and <laughs> a bit iffy about the whole situation. And also it was perfect that Andrew Wilson, not Tibble, was wearing this t-shirt with a giant line on it as well. And I was like, oh, it kind of ties in. Um, and yeah, and it definitely made me realize that um, bands don't really talk to one another. <laughs> <laughs> and you have to roll with things as well and make things work if you can. So yeah, that was my first one, but hey, I kept doing it. And I've done plenty more shoots with that I so apparently it's probably good in Scotland for life. Our speaker, Nick Atkinson, is a member of iconic Kiwi funk rock band Supergroove. He also plays various wind instruments in a novelty blues duo called Hopetown Brown. His story today is about a recent gig he played and involves a saxophone, a trumpet, and inappropriate gigging attire. Ladies and gentlemen, Nick Atkinson. tall Nick Atkinson. <laughs> now I want you to imagine a piano keyboard, okay? It's got 88 keys on it, 88 notes. Now I counted the number of people in here, I think there's 49 people in here. Imagine, imagine 88 people, 88 different people, different personalities. You see, notes are just like people. And when I started to learn about music, I was completely baffled. It was like walking into a room full of 88 people. I was like, bloody hell, you know? <laughs> now, some musicians have no problem with this. Esther Stevens, for example, is this magnificent, incredible singer. If you saw her explore two, two and a half years ago, she just corralled the notes like an expert cowboy, <laughs> brought them out of nothing, made them dance in pretty patterns. <laughs> I, I wasn't like that. I found the 88 notes really baffling, but I made friends with about six or seven of them. <laughs> and that served me pretty well for a few years. Uh, but, you know, 
and, and, we, and we, it was a cosy relationship, you know. We were buddies, we got on, it was no problem. Every now and then another note would come into the picture. <laughs> and it would just mess up the whole dynamic. And suddenly everything else was a bit awkward and I, I got a bit shy and <laughs> couldn't communicate with my other notes. <laughs> but then I slowly got to know the odd new note, you know. And notes are interesting. You might get three notes together to form a perfect quarter, a perfect major triad. You could add one new note to that. And it really depends on the order that you add that note. Imagine you're meeting for dinner, three people, and another person comes in. Now look, that might not work if you're three really close friends and the other person's, you don't know them so well. But let's say they just arrive second and they get talking to that first note and they get up a bit of a thing. Then the other two notes can come in and it's a beautiful thing. And notes are a bit like that. And uh, so I'm very envious of the of the John Mulhollands and the Nathan Haynes of this world who seem to have mega memory for the 88 notes and know their names and know their personalities and everything like that. Now on a saxophone, which I like to play, there, I believe there's 31 notes or something like that. Not very many notes. Um, I play a bit of clarinet and there's about 42 notes, but the real experts can get 50 notes. But again, I only like, I only, I only really know a few of them. I'm no expert, so I really have to kind of budget my, how I use my notes. And so last Sunday, uh, I'm in a band with this guy, Tim Stewart. And Tim is a completely different personality from me. He, we met when, when, uh, when we were eight years old, and Tim is a gregarious guy. Uh, he always speaks in absolutes, you know. It's, uh, I hate that. And that's the end of that conversation. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> or, or I love it, I love it so much, no one, no one else can have any opinion that's valid about that. And that's what I love about Tim. Because it takes me a while to make up my mind about something. If I hear a record for the first time, I'm like, oh. And I'm not even sure if I like it sometimes. There are those songs and there's that music that makes that immediate impression and you love it from the beginning. But then there's other music that, oh, actually, maybe someone like Andrew Tidball picked up on how good it was. And then, oh, I'll give it another listen. And, ah, now I see. Whereas Tim is not like that. So we're quite different personalities. Uh, he... He is a fiery redhead, I should also say. He, Tim plays trumpet. So Tim and I, we played, we, 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 we play in this band, Hopetown Brown, and there's just two of us. Uh, Tim sings, he has this incredible voice. And he's very at ease when he's singing. When he's singing, he has a wonderfully natural relationship with all the, with all the notes. But when he's playing trumpet, it's almost like he's walked into a room full of people just wearing his underwear <laughs> and socks. And he's very uncomfortable. <laughs> and, in his, and, and it could totally go wrong and he could completely almost fall into a panic. And the trumpet becomes this useless thing in his hand. But there are other times when he just becomes a Mexican wrestler. And mm. it, he's like Finn Skulls at the Carnivorous Plant Society uh, last night. So I, you never quite know which Tim you're going to get. And it always has to be managed. So last Sunday we were at the Golden Dawn. Perfectly typical Hopetown Brown gig. Uh, set up the stage and the mic. And uh, we have a, a bass player, another friend of mine, who plays a few tunes with us as well. And uh, Matthew Crawley, it, you know, it's, it's great that it's, it, you feel very kind of well, privileged, really, when, when he invites you to play at his venue because he's got, he's got such a great ro you know, roster of bands. And, and we play, let's place it, we play some divey gigs, man. We, we play outside a taco truck on Ponsonby Road and we get paid in tacos. <laughs> <laughs> so Golden Dawn, they give you real cash and uh, the beer is terrific. <laughs> and so we arrived here, but Matthew's not there last Sunday. We had a new sound man um, 
who is al who's also a DJ called Magic Sam. And Magic Sam is extremely, he's tall and handsome, he's a wonderful easy way, uh, but an unknown quantity, you know, and he was going to affect the way we were going to relate to our notes, you know, whoa. And uh, Sam liked it quite loud. And <laughs> I am, I am certainly one for an intimate gig like that, or any gig, in fact. I think you go to a lot of gigs and often the people stand at the back of the room and I think a, part, a big part of that is because it's just too damn loud. And so they, they step back. You turn it down a bit and they come closer, you know. You get an unknown Mortal Orchestra album and one of the genius things about Ruben's engineering and mastering is you put it on and you just want to turn it up. You just can't help yourself. You reach for the volume knob. And um, I wish more live engineers were like that. But Sam did a wonderful job, but it was loud. And so we arrived there set up, all got sorted, and the first song we played has this unison passage where we're both playing the same note at the same time. Now the thing about both playing the same note at the same time on a wind instrument is it's a bit like trying to thread a needle. It either goes through or it doesn't, you know? <laughs> and if it doesn't, a little bit of thread can catch and then you pull it through and it all unravels and it's hideous. And it's really hard. But if you get it through, then you can just pull it through and you're sewing. No doubt the note. No problem <laughs> And so, so the thing about that was, but with that extra volume comes ex extra pressure because it's loud. It's almost too loud. And I could see there were a few people there, but they were all standing right at the back. And about five minutes before they started, William Dart came, who's, who's a, who's a uh, noted classical reviewer. And I've spoken to William a few times, and one thing he hates is out-of-tune unison passages. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the other thing was Tim. Tim had just been on a trip to Mexico. And uh, he loves all things American. He has cowboy boots and jeans, and uh, <laughs> and uh, he wanted to go. He wanted to go to Mexico, and for a long time. And so tonight it was ridiculous because he was wearing too many clothes. He had, <laughs> he had his big heavy jeans. He had a he had a singlet and a heavy denim shirt, a leather vest. <laughs> I mean, he looks very fetching and he's a couturier because he's a big kind of biker looking dude and he's got a pierced you know, what do you call a bit in the nose? Septum. Thank you, septum. <laughs> but on top of all this he had this actually quite magnificent poncho, Mexican poncho <laughs> that had a single leather toggle here and some very intricate embroidery and it was kind of grey wool, heavy wool. And so we, start, we start the show uh, with this kind of jazz piece and we get through it and it goes okay but I can just sense that Tim is having a bit of a I've turned up naked to the party moment. And, uh, and I can just feel it. And, and I know, because I've, I've been playing with, with him so long, he takes his <laughs> You can hear these breaths. And, and the thing is, he's getting, he's, he's inflating himself. And he's not breathing out, and he's getting fuller and fuller and fuller. Again, and he's getting hotter and hotter and sweating bullets. And then we start the next tune, still, he's still wearing all the gear, and I'm like, how are we gonna find a way to get Tim to take off some of his clothes so he, can't go back, <laughs> so he can start breathing again. And this is just a little kick at Golden Dawn. And of course, there's this massive social dynamic in there because Tim and I have known each other for a long time. And the more time we spend together, the harder it gets. But I love the guy more than anybody else I know. And so the second song comes around, and now Tim really is having a bit of trouble. I mean, you, maybe you couldn't even hear it, but I bet William Dark could hear it. And we're playing this kind of jazzy line, and it's going okay. And I can hear Tim just inflating himself and just having over and over again. And then, and then he starts to shake. And of course, when you're playing the trumpet, you start to shake it several because then you can hear it. Then the trumpet note starts going, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, poor Tim.
them. Oh. Poor Tim. So um, I kind of I kind of did a little lick that is kind of code that says, why don't you just exhale? <laughs> <laughs> and he did, and we kept playing the tune. He took a little pause. I did a little doo doo doo, and uh, it was all fine. And then we and then so we get to the end of the tune, and I just said to Tim, take some clothes off. <laughs> and he's, when he's like that, he's very malleable. He will do anything you say. If I say, if I said run out the door now, he would have just been gone. Because he needs, he just needs help in that situation. So he took his punch off and his leather vest off. And we kind of muddled our way through the gig, but it was still very, very loud. Second set came, um, and I had a bit of a talk with Mike and uh, with Sam. Sorry, Magic Sam. Um, not very good with names, Joseph, as you can see. It's shocking. Um, and. Um, and we, and, we, and we turned it real low, we, we turned it down really low so the mics were just given a bit of support and just the people just came closer. And it just, and people could still talk a little bit, it wasn't, it, people didn't have to shout at each other. So it was kind of, it was cool. And if, and if people were interested and they listened, if we played something good it went silent and if we played something average everyone started talking. So it was good barometer of how it was going. And, um, and, 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 and the gig got a bit of momentum and Tim relaxed and he had a beer and, and uh, he, started, he started playing real nice. And it was, and it was just interesting because it was just a typical little gig, a typical little night, uh, in, in 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 a little bar in Ponsonby, uh, and and it was such a complex, strange evening. But there was a little sequel to that because our bass player Nick, he's not, I don't want to, he's not really a professional musician. <laughs> he's a graphic designer, <laughs> um, and he he plays some really nice bass, and we've played a lot of a lot of shows together, me and Nick, but. You'll notice if you see a professional musician play guitar, they put the lead up through the strap and in. And this means if you catch your lead around anything, it won't just pull out. <laughs> and also professional musicians often will have a, li a little accoutrement on the buttons for their strap, so their strap doesn't fall off. And one really good thing for that is those little red washers from Grosch bottles, you know, the little Grosch pop tops, they got a red washer, stick that, strap doesn't come off. Nick didn't have that, um, which was fine. So in the last song, our crescendo of soul blues madness, his strap just fell off. And then he's just kind of holding his face like this. And then Tim just stopped playing. And I just had a tambourine. <laughs> and so I, I actually looked at Tim and I just screamed at him, keep playing, motherfucker! And Tim, and Tim just <laughs> And as Nick was trying to put on his other bit of the strap, the other side of the strap fell but we got, we made it to the end of that tune, and the crowd were kind of on our side, so it was okay. And they were sort of, they were very gracious because they insisted we played an encore. And and I thought, oh my word, what if we've used up all our songs? We've played two whole sets. We don't know any other songs, you know. Uh, we don't know other songs. How is this possible? We've been playing for 27 years. We know only this many songs. And then I thought, wait a minute, me and Nick do know one other song, and it's a it's a Tongan lullaby, and it's called Analatu. And it was recorded by, the, the way I got to hear it, it was recorded by the Orphan Girls Grammar School Choir. And, um, <laughs> and it's a really beautiful track, you know. And it somehow got its way onto a world music compilation uh, that was released in the 90s. And it's always just been a bit of a treasured little CD of mine. And it's a beautiful song. Now, Analatu, the, the melody only has three notes. It's just F sharp, E, and D. <laughs> Thank heavens for that. I like each and every one of you. Um, <laughs> yeah, all know, you know my secrets. 
And so we played this little tune, it's a very mellow tune, and it was just very calming, and it just was the full stop for an evening of chaos and madness, and finally there was just a little bit of tranquility. Yeah. <laughs> Our speaker, Esther Lois Stevens, is a Kiwi actor and singer based in Melbourne. Her band, Esther Stevens and the Means, just released their self-titled debut album in April. Her story today is about growing up with a singing voice and taking on a musical career one competition at a time. Would you give a round of applause for Esther Stevens? Sing when you're winning. Everyone has talents that present themselves early in childhood. For me, that talent was winning things off the radio. <laughs> I discovered I had an almost supernatural ability to speed dial and speed redial and somehow come up lucky caller number three. I won a lot of albums off my FM. Mostly <laughs> gangster rap, viciously punctuated with violence, sex and swearing. It was quite an education for the Howick born and raised ten-year-old daughter of a pastor. <laughs> One day after school was particularly record-breaking. Robbie Williams was coming to town and Maury FM was giving away a prize pack, including tickets to the gig and a fat photo book of Robbie pics. At 14, I honestly had very little interest in Robbie Williams. I was far more concerned with winning theatre sports competitions, dating some dickhead five years older than me and learning every song off the miseducation of Lauren Hill. <laughs> However, this particular competition caught my attention. The DJ would call Robbie song titles at random and without stopping to think, the caller had to sing a line or several from each song. My father has always been stunned at my ability to remember lyrics. It was a running family joke that if only I could remember my times tables the way I remember songs, followed by the typically parental suggestion of maybe you should sing them. Anyway, on this day, I put my skills to good use. After listening to a few people fail and thinking I could do that, I called in, nailed the challenge and won. For some time after, this caused people around me to think that I adored Robbie Williams because of this <laughs> giant pile of merch that I'd bagged and everybody gave me Robbie Williams gifts. <laughs> anyway, that same day, about three or so hours later, the same station was running yet another singing-themed competition called Sing For Your Supper. It was basically karaoke meets X Factor. They'd take three contestants singing a bit of whatever, then the listening audience would vote and crown the most vocally adept with a $50 McDonald's voucher. <laughs> Clearly no one was keeping track of the day's winners because I called in, won again, and later took 10 or so of my mates out for McFlurries. <laughs> At 16, I applied for the first round of New Zealand Idol. Idol was a relatively new phenomenon in 2003, it was shiny and exciting and full of career-making promises for budding musical talent. I devotedly followed the Australian series that put Guy Sebastian in the spotlight, and when it was announced that the franchise was coming to NZ, I was certain that this was my shot. I've been singing since I was very small. My father is a guitarist and songwriter, my mother sings and plays piano, <laughs> me and all my siblings sing and naturally harmonise, though fortunately somehow we managed to actually, we managed to avoid becoming a family band. Uh, I was first in a recording studio at nine. At 15, I'd co-written, recorded, and released a full album with my unfortunately named band, 
dynasty. <laughs> I was singing and working with bands in church every week. I'd won singing competitions. I'd earned a reputation at school for being the good singer and taking the lead in the school production. I was sure that I had the talent and the experience to make the cut and the charm and charisma to win the ears and hearts of the NZ voting public. <laughs> I was turned down. I didn't even get a first audition, just a letter saying, no thanks. Hindsight is 2020, and now it's probably just as well, but at the time I was pretty gutted. Later that year, the Christian radio station Life FM ran their own take on Idol, with just a fraction of the budget and production values. It was called Life FM New Zealand Icon. <laughs> Same premise, each week selected contestants would ring in, sing something over the phone, and then be slowly whittled down by audience votes. Being connected with the contemporary Christian culture through my youth group, it was pretty easy for me to rally voters, and week after week I stayed in the competition with stars in my eyes. This was going to be my break, the opportunity to show the world what I could do, a perception constantly reaffirmed by everyone involved in the competition. At the grand final at Parakai Hot Springs, <laughs> I won and became the Life FM Icon 2003. <laughs> the prize was to write and record a single, debuting me as a real live professional Christian recording artist. The tune would be played on Life FM, performed on the main stage of Parachute Music Festival with Detour 180 as the backup band, and released on the Christian equivalent to the Kiwi hit disc. As many a singing contest winner has discovered over the years, the aftermath of winning is not nearly as exciting as the hype of the actual competition. Myself and one of the Life FM DJs co-wrote and recorded the single My Generation, a ballad about wasted youth, which wasn't too terrible, and it made it to number three on the Life FM chart. I performed the song at Parachute, still the largest audience I've ever sung in front of, an experience which was disorganized, pretty overwhelming, and extremely brief. And finally, the song came out on God's Own Volume 3, with my name spelt incorrectly. <laughs> and then it was all over. At 16, you believe the hype. There's something mysterious and awe-inspiring about the upper echelons of the music industry. You truly believe that if these mythical, high-powered record execs just heard how talented you are and bestowed their blessing upon you, you'd have a ready-made career, making and selling album after album, performing sold-out gigs to fans that adored you. But as we know for most artists, the reality is quite different. It's ironic that I scored a McDonald's voucher all those years ago because I kind of feel like reality singing competitions are like the fast food of musical careers. Heavily marketed, disappointing on delivery, and over very quickly. It has always struck me as the most unusual image, an artist performing their heart out to a whooping wild audience of fans but with a giant table and four static individuals sandwiched in between, sipping from branded cups and quietly brewing witty phrase or cutting criticisms for the end of each song. Now this is not to discredit the talent these programs can occasionally showcase, or the well-meaning intentions of the industry professionals called upon to mentor, but first and foremost, it's television. I think it's important to acknowledge outstanding achievements in music, but the concept of winners and losers is subjective and hinged on the opinions of people who may or may not be qualified to judge. The discussion around white artists like Iggy Azalea being nominated in the rap category at the Grammys is a recent example. Rapper Macklemore has himself suggested that his Grammy win was down to the fact that 
old white guys on the voting panel prefer to vote for a white nominee. I've been a drummer and singing teacher on and off for most of my professional career. And I've noticed these reality shows often give young talent a false idea of what a career in the music industry actually entails. The Play It Strange initiative and the long esteemed Rockfest competition that we were talking about before both do fabulous work to counter this, focus on, focusing on building creativity, practical music skills and self-confidence rather than five minutes of fame. After high school, I discovered another creative passion in acting and began to pursue it, all while logging hundreds of hours singing live and working in bands. Six months shy of 30, I've only just independently released my debut album with my band. We wrote it, for the most part we funded it, thank you New Zealand on air. <laughs> we booked the tour, and now we're playing the shows. Come to the tuning fork tomorrow night. <laughs> there is a deep sense of satisfaction in this achievement and taking a slightly longer road to the end. Even if it never becomes a hit, it's always been a dream of mine to do an album. We worked hard, we learnt a lot, and now we have one. The truth is now I feel like the best version of myself. The best musical version of myself. I've had time to evolve, to discover what I want to sound like, and I've developed the tools, well, I hope I've developed the tools and maturity to handle the often fickle nature of a professional creative life. Longevity is my ultimate goal, to be a permanent fixture in the creative life that I love. Winning is nice, but maintaining is better. I guess now for me, it's not so much sing when you're winning, as let me entertain you. <laughs> Thank you to our speakers Andrew, Milana, Nick and Esther. If you've got a great story to tell or would like to learn more, visit us at thewatercooler.co.nz and be sure to sign up for our newsletter to hear about our upcoming shows. This episode was produced by Sarah Finnegan-Walsh. Special thanks to The Basement and New Zealand On Air for their continued support. I'm your host Joseph Harper. Join us next month for more stories from The Water Cooler.